Hello and welcome to We Are History with me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barr. She's already lost it. I, I've, I've lost the plot already this morning, John. It's uh, going to be a fun we have to do one. This, we have to do this 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 countdown. And it's such a struggle for us, really. Every, we've done, this is what, episode what now? We're well, on about 30 35, something, something like that. that. And, and we fuck up the countdown and clap every single episode. I clapped on the one. I'm supposed to have one and then clap. I, Angela's... Yeah, she's tired. She's had a lot of work. She's been, uh... it's been yes, I'm tired. I, I seem to start every episode recently with "I'm very tired, John." But I am very tired. Today, we are talking about a period that does get covered in history sometimes: mm-hmm. the Second yep. World War. There are one I or two. Vaguely have heard of it. John. There are one or two uh, books on it in the airport bookshop <laughs> with dodgy men looking at you know Nazi insignia on the back cover, but. <laughs> We're taking a contrarian approach to it today, something you don't really hear very much about. And we were interested mm. to dig a little deeper into that. So we are talking today about German resistance to the Nazis. What was yeah. going on inside Germany? How are people who are opposed to Hitler resisting, planning overthrows, coups, assassinations? Angela's leading on this one because she loves all things German. Just German, <laughs> not, not Nazis. It's not all things Nazi you love, is it? It's just all things Deutschland. German. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so. bisschen Deutsch, aber. Uh, uh, das ist der Bleistift. Did I, <laughs> did I ever tell you about my German lessons at school? No. We had a German teacher at school and he said, fair lads, he was just Austrian. If you don't want to do the work, you don't have to. And I Great. went, I went, all right then. He went, really? I went, yeah, I don't want to do German. Okay, you sit at the back and do your homework. And so I went to the back of the class, did my homework. Next lesson, I said, do I, do I have to do German today, sir? Or do I... Um, just do my homework. Do you want to do German? Not really. Okay. So this carried on for a year or two. I didn't do any German, just did my homework. And then he retired, <laughs> Dr. Palm. And um, the new teacher saw me just working on something completely. What? O'Farrell, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just, I'm just doing my homework, sir. I don't do German. You don't do German. And uh, all the other te- kids in the class were, yeah, O'Farrell didn't want to do German. Why doesn't he do German? Oh, he said he didn't want to, so he doesn't have to. So I got, take, I got to take the headmaster and I explained this. And I said, look, see, we're doing our choices for O-level, you know, GCSE next term. There's no point in starting now. And this new teacher had to put up with me not doing German. All because I was the one who went, yeah, I fancy not doing German stuff. <laughs> So John, I don't know how to tell you this. You do know that's not what we mean by German resistance. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Look, I've a long anecdote before I've even got into the subject matter. But I was so impressed with Angela's German and the fact I didn't understand it is clearly based on uh, my, my cheekiness at school. I did German A-level, you see. That's ah. the, um, yeah, I really love the German language. People yeah. think it's um, a bit harsh and a bit unsexy. I don't. I think it's a, a beautiful language. But anyway... Obviously, when we think of resistance in World War Two, we think of maybe the French resistance, if you're a particular fan of Alloello, um, you know, <laughs> uh, Norwegian resistance. You know, resistance in occupied territories is quite a Polish resistance. It's yes. talked about quite a lot. And I think there's a sort of assumption that most Germans went along with yeah. the Nazi regime, yeah. which to an extent they did. But there were dissenters and there were people who sort of passively resisted what was going on and there was more sort of established resistance as well particularly within the German military which we'll come on to I think it's worth pointing out like the rise of the Nazi regime we, we can't, haven't got time to cover that right there's, now there's a lot of books a whole, on it. a, a whole episode and there's a yeah. lot of books on it and stuff yeah. but 
to begin with, the, the National Socialists were very much a sort of rural phenomenon. Your urban, what would now be called on Twitter, your liberal media elite, were mm -hmm. not really the people being courted by right. the National Socialists. You know, they were a sort of rural phenomenon. They, they particularly did well in towns and villages with less than 5,000 inhabitants right. to start off with. Because of, you know, the economic depression, unemployment, things like that, that the populism spread yes. through Germany. From the south, is that right? From the south. They were yeah. really a Bavarian right. phenomenon to begin yes. with. But then they sort um, of coalition with the Prussian military and became sort of, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And really Hitler's rise to leadership, he, he, it wasn't like he ever won an election outright. And, no. You know, it was all a compromise. And then what happened was as soon as he became chancellor, you had um, von Hindenburg, who was president, who was a well-loved president, had been president through the Weimar Republic, and I think he sort of trusted Hitler to be fair. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, Hitler got into position and immediately one of the first things Hitler did was start preparing the legal basis for all the atrocities to come. Right. So he was really covering his back. You know, within six months, he'd implemented the first sterilization law, for example. Wow. Um, so immediately, once in power in 1933, his future sort of genocidal policy is now established in law. In 1933, after he'd been in power for a couple of months, he passed uh, what was called the Enabling Act. And this law gave the government the right to pass any future laws without a vote in the Reichstag. Wow, so dictatorship which, uh, really. In the parliament. Yeah. Hitler knew that the German people believed in law and order, yeah. you know, as a general thing. So... What do you do if you, you know, want to be a dictator over a country that believes in law and order is you change the law. Right. So, for example, he passed a law for the restoration of the professional civil service, which basically allowed him to then get rid of any non-Aryan civil servants. Right. Again, you can read up on this, the night of the long knives and things like that. The big purges that were done within uh, civil service and within the military to yeah. place Nazi party members in, in positions of power. I think we'll just say something about the Night of the Long Knives. I mean, that mm. was him sort of assassinating all at once, because uh, it's relevant to this, because they killed mm. lots of the people who might have been in opposition to uh, Hitler. So the whole sort of more sort of inverted commas socialist wing of the National Socialists, the brown shirts were purged. Mm. Lots of people who might have been leaders or rivals to Hitler were killed. And that night he killed someone who had done an un- I mean, it was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people died on that night in 1934, mm. but they even killed someone who had done an abridged version of Mein Kampf without his permission. Yeah. So that's the sort of level of psychosis here, that yeah. he's like bore this grudge about someone editing his book without asking and had him killed that very much very early on in his regime. It's like, yeah. it's the first thing I want to do is kill the bloke. And then someone got killed who was the same name as someone he was after. And his wife complained that, They'd got the wrong man. She said, well, you should have been honoured to die for the Nazi regime anyway. So, God, so... And, and I think it's worth, like, remembering that because when we say, you know, there was little German resistance in comparison to other, you know, places yes. where there was resistance to the regime, you've got to remember, A, the decades of brainwashing of a nation up yeah. to the point that war breaks out. Yeah. And also you've got to remember what would happen to you if you were a dissenter. And yes. the thing is, in German, uh, there's something called, now let me get this right, Sippenhaft, it's called. Yes, that's the, yes. It goes back to the Middle Ages, and it's this idea that your whole family is responsible for your treachery. Yes. So if you were a dissenter, you had to not just be prepared to die for, you know, 
because you were against yes. the regime, but that your whole family would also be murdered. Because, um, and particularly towards the end of the war, Himmler yes. really reenacted this idea of Sippenhaft, this old Germanic, Teutonic, middle-aged idea of treachery being in your bloodline. Exactly. We talked about something a bit like this in the North Korea episode about three generations mm. of punishment, that you would not just be punished, but your children and your grandchildren would be punished, uh, which exactly. makes it very hard for somebody to think, well, I don't care if they take me. But then if you think about your loved ones and the you know the, the children not even born yet, and am I mm. going to make them suffer all their lives for what I do? It's a very strong disincentive. I mean, mm. reading about this subject, the great British historian A.J.P. Taylor sort of decided in the 60s that there was very negligible opposition to Germany or resistance to Germany. I think digging a little deeper since, historians have found there was, but it was very sporadic, it was very divided, and it was very unorganised. And it was very fortunate for France to have de Gaulle in England leading the resistance, bringing together the communists and the conservatives because they were an, a country under occupation from a foreign power. And so they all had one very clear objective, which was get the Germans out, make France free and have its own elections. The German resistance had all sorts of different agendas. They want, Some of them wanted to go back to the 1939 borders and have peace. Uh, so to yeah. keep the, you know, Austria and the Sudetenland and parts of Poland. Others were like against the Nazis and were against mm -hmm. the persecution of the Jews. So they all had different agendas. And most crucially of all, Clearly, you couldn't talk about it openly in Germany because you would be executed. And so that's yeah. a fairly, and, and fairly so rapid... Difficult yeah. to organise. Yeah. And there yeah. were some small organisations, and we'll come on to them, but it was a lot of sort of, you know, intellectuals getting together and talking in big country houses, but not able to actually do very much. Yes. You know, there was that element of it. Even that was uh, potentially suicidal. Well, and was, and yeah. again, we'll come on to that. Yeah. But I think the reasons for... for like you say, in France, people got together in a common goal to overthrow the Nazi regime. Yeah. Whereas I think those disparate groups just never really got together. So you had obviously the underground Communist Party yes. in Germany, but then you had like very conservative in yes. Germany. They saw the Nazi, yeah. the aristocracy saw the Nazis as these young upstarts mm -hmm. who'd sort of come in and, and were. Um, destroying their way of life, you know. So yes. the ultra conservative aristocracy were also against the regime, but they were never going to get together with the communists, no, for example. No, to, no. And and obviously one of the biggest fears was that if the Nazis were taken out of power, that that could leave a vacuum for Bolshevism, right? They'd seen what yes, happened yes. in Russia, and so that's why it wasn't just a case of right, let's just do this, let's just overthrow. Because they had a fear of something worse, or yes. in their heads. Which is sort of worse. how Hitler came to power in the first place, really. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So who was the first to, to consider overthrowing them? Then? Where, where, the, where do we start with this specific... So we start... So before the war, there were, um, particularly in the military, there were people who were not happy with the new regime. So you had the commander-in-chief of the army, um, General Hammerstein, his name was. And he was the first he the, person... He did who, the musicals. He did, that's right. He wrote uh, yeah, lots of songs about it. Yeah, with yeah, his well, mate Rogers, I believe. Oh, Sound yeah. of Music, Sound of Music, yeah. of course, yeah. <laughs> so he was, in as early as 1933, was really alarmed at the prospect of Hitler gaining all this power. Yeah. And so he spoke to the President Hindenburg about a, an armed overthrow, a military coup, essentially. Um... And he was loyal to Hindenburg, as many Germans were. They yes. liked him as a president. He was a, um, a popular he, he, president. So he was the head of state whilst Hitler was the chancellor. That's, a, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But Hindenburg 
said to Hammerstein at this point, don't worry, Hitler's never going to take power. It's going to be fine. And then after Hitler did take power and become chancellor, Hammerstein approached Hindenburg again and sort of went, shall we, um, is it time to do this guy? Because, you know, I don't think he put it quite like that, John, but, you know, (laughs) but Hindenburg told Hammerstein very much to stay out of politics. Just you take care of the army Leave this to us. Now, in, in 1933 and 1934, the police were getting reports of assassination plots against Hitler every week. Lots of them weren't taken seriously. There were plans like poison being squirted from bunches of flowers, exploding fountain pens, wow. and tunnels underneath government buildings. And they were pretty much dismissed, most of these reports. But the SS was kept quite busy with serious threats as well. So from the moment he was in power... There were people who wanted him out. I'm particularly taken with the poison squirted from bunches of flowers. It was the cl- that was the militant the clown. clowns. The clowns were very <laughs> strong in the opposition. It's like they had a little thing on their lapel. Oh, Adolf, look, smell my flower. Oink, oink. And Think about clown stories. They're very organised. They're very organised, and also they offered to go in his car, their car. I expect. Oh no, <laughs> they were gonna they were gonna throw confetti over him from a bucket. <laughs> So pre-war resistance, you had your socialists, your communists, your anarcho-syndicalists, all the people you expect to be in resistance. But actually, the military resistance in Germany was really important. The only one that can really do it, isn't it, really? Yeah, well, you're up against the SS and the Gestapo. You know, civilian resistance is going to be able to do very little against a ruthless secret police and the SS. And and then there was a terrible tactical move from Hindenburg, wasn't it, at this point? Yeah, I mean, Hindenburg, the president, went and bloody died. Oh, big mistake, Hindenburg. It's like, Why do that? Yeah, because then what's Hitler going to do? Then, oh, who should we have as president? I feel it would be a bit grabby of me to, take, to sort of make myself everything. So, um, <laughs> and, and it's not very diverse, this cabinet. So, <laughs> or, or did he do that? And so I don't know. You tell me. Well, Hitler, within pretty much hours after Hindenburg died, at that point, well, this is when he, I mean, I don't know why I'm laughing because it's so grim, but he, um, at this point, made every member of the army swear an oath of allegiance to him. Wow. Not to Germany, right. but to Hitler personally. Now, this wow. was the law of the oath of the Wehrmacht. This was enshrined in law that all of the military had to swear allegiance to the Fuhrer. That's incredible, really. When you think he'd only been in power a year or so. And yeah. um, he's pushing his luck, isn't he, really? But he got he seems to... He really is. Yeah. But by doing that, obviously, he's then made that resistance even more difficult. Yes. Because you've made an oath, right? Yes. To personally show your allegiance to this man. Right. Now, there's lots of evidence that the military had a lot of disdain for the Nazis. And a lot of them refused to work directly with the SS or to support Hitler's policies. But they right. weren't able to be active in their dissent. So it's quite passive dissent in a way. Yeah. Many officers hated him, particularly for his treatment of Jews and the way that he simplified their reasons for losing World War One as well. Now, it's worth saying at this point, he had the army, I think during the 20s particularly, had the army on side Hitler because he was against the um, Treaty of Versailles, yes. as were... Yes, so many Germans. Right, because obviously the Treaty of Versailles meant that the army was greatly reduced. They, um, you know, and and so... Germany felt humiliated in 1919. They were humiliated after after that. And, And obviously the economic situation was dire. So up to a point, the army were with him. But then when, you know, he started to take his 
anti-Semitic stand and um, the more sort of rhetoric about their reasons for losing world, the army were a bit like, hang on a minute, yeah, <laughs> we, yeah, not yeah. this bit. We don't like this bit. Yeah. And like you say, Night of the Long Knives happened and then you had Kristallnacht in 1938 and this really started to cement anti-Nazi feelings in, in some of the military, particularly as, of course, you know, there'd been plenty of Jewish soldiers fighting for Germany in World War One. Yeah. You know, so this really cemented bad feeling in the military. There were several sort of vague plots to, to overthrow from military coups in the lead up to the start of World War Two. And particularly, I think people were ready to act if uh, Czechoslovakia was invaded. Yes, I read about one that was really growing in uh, 1938 because they're thinking this madman is going to lead us into war. But then when Chamberlain and France, you know, acceded to all Hitler's demands in 1938, it took all the wind out of that particular plot. So every time they nearly got to enact upon their, you know, treacherous instincts, either... You know, Austria would be brought into the Anschluss or the British would agree to his demands at uh, Munich. And so it's very hard to overthrow a leader who seems to be getting his own way and seems to be having some success with his agenda. Yeah. Uh, so it's not well, really till later in the war that it gets serious. Absolutely. Because any overthrowing of Hitler's regime, they would need the support of the Allies, right, of, the, uh, of Britain and France. Yes. So the fact that Chamberlain had... Uh, you know, in Munich and appeasement had happened, really disheartened that resistance in the military, thinking, well, they're just going to let him have what he wants. Yes. Weirdly, the military resistance wasn't quite as upset about the invasion of Poland because many no. of the officer class in the German army had vested interest in Poland. Right. So they weren't quite as willing to overthrow on the invasion of Poland as they would have been on the invasion of, of Czechoslovakia. Because, again, you know, these are aristocratic sort yeah. of... Um, conservative people the first assassination attempt that we know about on hitler in detail yeah. in detail happened in november 1939 so pretty early pretty early on invasion yeah. of poland so pretty early on and uh, this was a guy georg elza and he was acting alone as far as we know a lone wolf he was a carpenter from Württemberg. um he'd been involved with the german communist party prior to 1933 and he knew that every year Hitler would return to the scene of the Beer Hall uprising that had in happened Munich. in 1923, 24, yes. it was in Munich. And he would go there on that date, November the 8th, every year and do a speech. Right. So this carpenter in the week sort of, um, or I think for a month leading up to, to that date, he would go into the Beer Hall and he would find a way to stay there after hours. Wow. And he started to carve a hole in the speaker's rostrum wow. um, in the beer hall. And eventually the hole was big enough that on the 7th of November, he placed a bomb in it in the speaker's restaurant. Uh, restaurant? <laughs> speaker's <laughs> rostrum. Very tired, John. Rost rostrum. Rostrum. Right. Rostrum. Good word. Plural, um, plural is rostra. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so he, uh, he, he set a timer right. on the bomb and legged it to the Swiss border. Okay. Now, the idea being that the timer was due to go off while Hitler was doing his speech. Yeah. Hitler would be dead. Course of history changed forever. Wow. But what actually happened was Hitler, for some reason, that day, I, did a shorter speech. I think there was a lot of war business going on, apparently. I, I read that. He, I think he was a bit busy. He's busy. He had busy. a busy, you know, he had um, Poland to manage now. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so he actually left the building 13 minutes before the bomb went off. Oh, wow. 
The bomb did go off. It killed seven people, injured 63 people. Um, Elsa was uh, arrested at the Swiss border. Yeah. He was sent to a concentration camp. He was executed in 1945 at Dachau just before it was liberated. Wow. So he would have been something so, of a hero, wouldn't he? So, he would have absolutely yeah, been a hero after the had war. he yeah. survived after the war. And it's so these little uh, moments in history. I mean, imagine how the course of history would have changed if uh, Hitler had been killed in November 1939. I mean, the war mm. probably would have petered out or maybe Himmler would have taken over or something. But the history would have been very different. These little moments of the 13-minute speech, mm. you know, uh, I mean, this is something, when you say about Himmler there, this is something that very much later on in yeah. the war, and we'll come to this, is I think people did realise that just killing Hitler wouldn't be enough. Yes. Because Himmler was primed and ready to take his place. Yes. And that actually, they needed to get rid of Hitler, Himmler and Goering. Yes. Really, in order to create the vacuum that they could yes, okay. move into, you know. Um, now, as time goes on, there is dissatisfaction growing with the Nazi regime. Yes within the German population. Not so much with Hitler himself. Hitler was such a populist that, that the people still sort of had hope for him, yeah. I think, and still that but but what they could see around them was Nazi corruption, you know, Nazi officers, Gestapo officers living yes. the high life while they're in austerity, you know. Although <laughs> Hitler sort of says he solves the problem of of unemployment back in 1935 but what he actually did of course was restart conscription yes increase armaments yes. so that kept people employed for a while he encouraged women to stay at home and not be in the workforce and of course removed all jewish people from the workforce yes. so yes. He, he you know his solving of the unemployment crisis wasn't quite as it seemed yes quite um because the wages stayed low and obviously as the war went on there were loads of food shortages and things so the population is starting to get a bit pissed off when they can see these Nazi officers swanning about living the high life and they're struggling. Right. There's some weird sort of um, groups of resistance here, aren't there? Sort of quite fringe Absolutely. little pockets. Yeah. Well, this is the sort of student and civilian resistance we can talk about a little bit because there were, like you say, little pockets of resistance. Nobody could organise enough. Nationwide or anything, no really nationwide because obviously the communication was just too dangerous well i mean we did a podcast um, about vlad the impaler and anyone who sort of even gave the wrong expression to vlad the impaler was immediately impaled i think this is the modern equivalent you know for just for absolutely. just for saying you know one person was on a tram after kristallnacht before the war saw a burning synagogue and said shame on our culture and was immediately arrested by and someone who overheard that and um you know, his, he was sent to a concentration camp. So this was the the, the, the jeopardy for the German people, mm. whatever they thought. And you know. like we said before, like you can't emphasize enough that whole Sippenhaft. Yes. Th th it wouldn't just be you. You were yeah. endangering, you know, be your whole family and your children and everyone. Um, there were lots of little groups of youth resistance because the youth are pretty good at that. Yeah. It mainly took the form of just not engaging with Hitler youth. Um, you know, so sort of dropping out. Tell me, tell us this, say this name in German for me, Angela, because I... Edelweiss Piraten. The Edelweiss Pirates, this means. This, this, and we're back on the sound of music again. We've got, <laughs> got Edelweiss Pirates. What? Who are the Edelweiss Pirates? So they were a group of working class youths and they would hold these sort of unauthorised meetings. And basically they, their main method of resistance was to have street fights with the Hitler youth, They're... which... I think he's sort of brilliant, isn't it? I, I... <laughs> yeah, but they were they were sort of organised. They weren't sort of like uh, mm. in secret, were they? They were like sort of no. uh, instead of the uh, 
scouts and the brownies and stuff. What's the uh, what's the lefty one that they uh, use? Uh, the woodland, the wood, woodcraft wood, folk. I think they were, I think they were like the woodcraft it. folk to the Hitler youth of the scouts, basically. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but just a bit more fighting. Yeah, and but in the end, <laughs> in the end, they were really quite brutally put down, weren't they? Well, in Cologne, there was an uprising in um, Cologne of there was uh, Cologne was badly bombed, yes, and so there was a lot of civil unrest in Cologne and a lot of factory workers with no work. And the Edelweiss pirates got involved with a small uprising there, which was very quickly put down in a gun battle by the authorities. Then there's a music-inspired group as well. The Swing Jugend, <laughs> Swing, the swing Youth. youth. Because swing. nothing says nothing says resistance more than jazz. Oh god! <laughs> so those speeches must have like gone off on tangents and then come back to the central thing. <laughs> jazz opposition to the Nazis. <laughs> the mind boggles. But that sort of music was considered to be degenerate to Hitler, wasn't it? It was absolutely. It was, it was, was. Negro jazz music, was as he would have called it. Exactly. You know. It wasn't Aryan music. Right. And in 1941, Himmler ordered the arrest of these. They were called swing activists. So they met in these secret clubs in Berlin and other big cities, and they would listen to swing and jazz. They weren't swingers, Himmler... everyone at home, just to be clear. No, not that swing. sort of swing. No, no. In, the, in the jazz sense. Yeah. And actually, it doesn't make it sound any less rude, no. does it? But they were sent to concentration camps, God. these jazz Just, just for bands, loving jazz. You know, That's pretty were, brutal, isn't it? Just for loving jazz. Um, one of the more famous resistance movements, and um, again, this could be a whole episode talking about these guys, and these are real sort of German heroes now, was the White Rose Movement. Now, the White Rose Movement came out of Munich University, mm. and um, it started by, uh, it was Hans Scholl and his sister Sophie Scholl, who you may have heard of. Yeah. And Hans Scholl heard in 1941, he read a copy of a sermon by a Catholic bishop, August von Galen. Yes. And he was a critic of the Nazi regime and particularly the Nazis' treatment of, of the Jews and involuntary euthanasia. And Hans Scholl had been to this sermon and Sophie, his sister, got permission to reprint the sermon and distribute it right. at the University of Munich. And that was the group's first leaflet that they distributed. And this became a small movement of distributing these pamphlets. There were six in total against the the regime so giving those out um, is really high risk stuff yeah. really high risk stuff because yeah. that gets in the wrong hands yeah. they're easily traced yeah um so you had hans and sophie scholl um hans scholl was a medical student and yeah. along with uh those christoph probst willi graf and alexander schmorel were the other sort of famous members of the white rose group yeah and they were all medical students and as medical students they'd had to do compulsory service student soldiers in the Wehrmacht, which is right. the German army, in their medical corps on the Eastern Front. And that really motivated their resistance. They saw what was happening, you know. And then after the defeat at Stalingrad, the defeat at Stalingrad was a real turning point. That might be. Then. That might be a place yeah. for our break, Angela. Oh, yes. Stalingrad. Okay, so let's go. Okay, there's let's lead up to that. Stalingrad and then we'll come back with what happened. Okay, next. so Stalingrad, 1942 to three. Yep. Hitler encircled by the tanks of Stalin, the turning point of the war. We'll come back and see if the opposition went up a gear after this short yes, word from our sponsors. Hello and welcome back. We're talking about resistance to the Nazis. Uh, and they've been telling me all about the White Rose Rebellion, which were, they were quite young, these students, weren't they? They were. They were very young. And as I said before the break, 
a battle of Stalingrad happened and this really stepped them up a gear. They sent out their six and their final leaflet that went out and it announced that the day of reckoning had come. I think it's worth saying at the Battle of Stalingrad, that's when Germans realised they couldn't win this war. Those soldiers you see in the newsreels marching past the Arc de Triomphe on horses and uh, victorious Air France, they're the very same soldiers. That's the 6th Army, the same soldiers you see shuffling through the snow at Stalingrad and most of them die there. In 1940, yeah. they look like they're kings of the world. In 1942-3, they are freezing to death without winter coats, trapped behind Russian lines and all, all to meet. But America's coming into the war. Yeah. It's not looking good. No. From 1940. It's from our point of view, Angela. I will say, from looking good point. for the history of the world. Oh, looking good depends, yeah, not Depends looking how good sympathetic you are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they put out this leaflet, and that's at the point where they were betrayed. Yeah. And the core group was arrested by the Gestapo on the 18th of February 1943. Show trials were held at the so-called People's Court, uh, which is where these sort of kangaroo right. court cases were heard, you know. Hans and Sophie Scholl and Christoph Probst were executed by guillotine. Oh, God, it's so brutal. Four days yes. um, later. That seemed to be a popular, uh, Han- popular way of doing it in Germany. Do you remember the um, Spy Pigeons episode we did? And those, mm. they got, weren't they guillotined as well? Those Belgians. They were, yeah. yeah. That's a brutal. Well, it's very brutal and it's very visceral, isn't yeah. it? To, yeah, You know, it's, uh, and Hans Scholl, his last words before his execution were, es lebe die Freiheit, which is let freedom live. We should raise a glass to him. Mm, absolutely. So, well, Hans and Sophie Scholl are sort of German heroes now. And uh, yeah, well, they were so young when they died. The interesting thing about that is when Britain and America and France occupied Germany after the war, they sort of set the agenda for what to celebrate, you know, what was the narrative for Germany after the war. And they wanted the sense of collective guilt among the Germans because of the Holocaust and because of so many people were involved. They were not going to big up the... Uh, resistance. So this is why this whole area has been sort of slightly suppressed. So the year after the famous Staffenberg bomb plot, which we'll come on to, there were suggestions of an anniversary and celebrating that people did try and kill Hitler. But the British were like, no, we're not going to make anything out of this. We want all the Germans to feel like they are responsible for the Holocaust. They are going to look at the newsreels of Auschwitz and Belsen and take this on board so this never happens again. The historiography of it is quite interesting that, you know, the history of the history is that the sense of German resistance is not something that was encouraged by the Allies. Whereas over in the eastern half of the country, the Russians were pushing up this big idea of, oh, the communists were against it all the time. This was, oh, this, yeah, we were all, yeah, we, we're the good guys in this. You know. and, and the East Germans after World War Two very much convinced victims. themselves that it was a West German problem. Yeah, yeah, and that they were the victims. <laughs> the Nazis, so, you know, that they were the victims. So Stalingrad happens, Angela, you're coming on to what happens after yeah. the White Rose and the Stalingrad. Tell us mm-hmm. about that. What what the mood changes in Germany? The mood very much changes in Germany. And Goebbels has done a speech after Stalingrad. He knew German morale was getting lower and lower. um, And he does a speech about the principles of total war. So he is now trying to get a nation on board that every single German person will fight to the death for Germany. Great. This is total war. Businesses, shops, everything just concentrate everything on the war effort there's no life outside war god. this is and every imagine, german citizen imagine being an ordinary german there. hearing that on the radio god i mean you already right, think we're not going to win this I think these mad people are going to take us down with them yeah My, exactly uh, and they're not going to be happy till we're all i mean dead before this all the that, that we know various plots people are getting plots together and it's like mm. and we're going to overthrow 
this terrible leader for our country. What's that? Oh, he's uh, Francis surrendered. Oh, well, we're going to try and go ahead with this plot. What's that? Oh, you, you're in Paris, are you, with the German army? Right, OK. So every time they had any plan, it was like the success increased. He overran the Low Countries, he overran Norway, but master of mm-hmm. like, all of Europe. And so it's not really the time to go, this guy is really bad for our country. Because it's only after yeah. Stalingrad. Yeah, when America's entered the war, Stalingrad's happened. And also the defeats in North Africa as yes, well. Yes, of course, so... after um, El Alamein. My dad exactly. was a... Um, a wireless operator in the Second World War. So he was listening to the Morse code and writing down the German Morse code for translation. And he said that um, every message from the Germans always ended HH, which is uh, four dots, Heil Hitler. And the other guy would have to reply HH, four dots, Mm. four dots. He said after Stalingrad, he noticed that uh, they would sign off and the person at the other end would go HH and there was just silence from the other end. They wouldn't do it back. Um, and wow. so they, they interpreted this as a major shift in the attitude of the everyday soldiers that these four dots weren't happening on his headset uh, because people were so demoralised and opposed to their regime. Those little acts of rebellion. That's a perfect example of that sort of mm. passive resistance. Yeah. But I think even for those people who just couldn't resist yeah. overtly, yeah. there were those little acts of things that really showed the, the sort of yeah. uh, mood of the country changing. In... February, March 1943, so this is just after Stalingrad, there is the Rosenstrasse protest. Now, from 1939, there were about 30,000 so-called intermarried couples in Germany. Oh, yes. That's um, Jewish men with German wives, essentially. The regime had refrained from outright persecution of them because you had these Aryan women and they couldn't be seen to be, you know. Uh, They were encouraged to divorce, but many of them refused to divorce. Um, so they were sort of left alone. But after Stalingrad, the roundup began of these Jewish men that had been intermarried. Um, and they were sent to the Jewish Welfare Office, which was at two to four Rosenstrasse in, in Berlin. And the wives began a protest. And the protest grew and grew. So there were about 6,000 people protesting wow. the incarceration of, it's about 1,800 Jewish men. Wow. Amazing that they were still Berlin. there in Berlin, in the heart of the empire. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a difficult moment for because Goebbels knew the mood of the country was changing and he knew that a massacre of a load of unarmed Aryan women in right. the middle of Berlin, probably not going to be the best optics. No. And especially because he's trying to, at this time, push these principles of total war. We're all in this together, you know, yeah. and we're all going to fight to the death. So eventually those men were released. Um, there was no retaliation against those protesters and most of those Jewish men survived. That's incredible. Which is amazing. Yeah. God, that's amazing. You, know, you think about how, t- how high Jewish risk it was to be time. Jewish in the Third Reich and yet to be in Berlin and survive. And I think because mm. people thought, uh, they saw, again, that how it would look and uh, that, mm. to, that, that to create this problem for themselves in their capital was just not worth it. So they were quite pragmatic at times in their madness. Absolutely. Um, Obviously, assisting persecuted Jews was a form of resistance in itself. And it happened quite a lot. You know, there were aristocrats like Maria von Maltzen and Maria Theresa von Hammerstein. They obtained papers for Jews and helped many Jews to escape Germany. So there were lots of people who had um, power were able to help. And that in itself was a form of resistance. Um, Have you seen Jojo Rabbit, Angela? I have seen yes. Jojo Rabbit. Uh, well, if you haven't seen it, listeners, do do film. watch that wonderful film. Take your tissues. You take t- I didn't feel like doing that. Oh, I see. Um... Oh, John O'Farrell. <laughs> oh. He's yeah, no, it's very moving. Very moving <laughs> film. You know, there's an example there of someone who uh, at enormous personal risk hides a Jew. This did happen across Germany. I mean, we should say that, you know, 4,000 um, 
Germans were sent to camps for resisting, maybe a thousand executed. So this was going on all over the place. Many others, of course, had fled. The uh, SPD had fled the country and had a, you know... Um, That's the Communist Party. Oh, sorry, so the Socialist Party. Socialist, Social yeah, Democrats. The, the Social yeah. Democrats had fled, the Communist Party had fled. Not to be mixed up with the SDP, the yeah. <laughs> Shirley Williams <laughs> and David Owen. The German Social Democrats, very different beast indeed. I just wanted to mention these... Um, the Salt Circle. I don't know if you oh, yeah, yeah. about that. Because uh, they were this sort of informal gathering of German intellectuals and involved also in the resistance against Nazi Germany. And um, this is just another example of how difficult it was to, to resist. So there was Elizabeth von Tadden. She was a private girls school principal. Oh, yes. And she'd continued to enrol Jewish girls at her school um, until the school was nationalised in 1941 and she was let go. But she was part of this this circle of intellectuals and there was a tea party at her house in September 1943 and they'd been infiltrated and they basically were all uh, executed. Wow, just for, Everyone a, just for a, this tea what they party. talked about at the tea party. When they were arrested, this was the end of the Abwehr. Now, the Abwehr was the uh, military intelligence yes. in Germany and they had... There was um, Hans Oster and Canaris, who were their leaders, were very involved in resistance, actually, in these plans yes. that were afoot in the military to overthrow Hitler. Because they were part of the intelligence services, they were well-planned, they were, they 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 well-placed. Yeah, it's to, easy for them um, to keep secrets. So, yeah. Absolutely. But this Tea Party was said to be the end of the military intelligence because they realised that resistance agents and allied spies had infiltrated the Abwehr. I see, I see. Um, okay. And so Hitler yeah. dis dissolved it. So this little Tea Party, where all the people were arrested and executed, was also the end of military intelligence and though their plots to overthrow right. Hitler as well. So right. it's a big deal. Um, there were other things. There was like the uh, Kreisel Circle and other intellectual circles and things. But if we go back to military resistance, this is where it's really important. Operation Spark is, it begins in 1940. It's named in 1941. So this is pre-Stalingrad. Pre, uh, pre yeah. Things are put in motion for plans to overthrow the regime and for a... Um, a post-overthrow government right. to be put in place. And then the Battle of Stalingrad happens, and this is really ramped up, this plan, Operation Spark. And the idea, it's called Operation Spark because the idea is that the murder of Hitler would be the spark right. that ignites the coup. So they knew that it was a man called uh, Henning von Tresco who was sort of the head of this Operation Spark. He was part of the Schwarze Kapelle, which was called the Black Band of German army officers and political conservatives who were planning the assassination of Hitler. Right. Um, so they started planning this from about 1940. But like we said, after Stalingrad, things really ramped up. And they knew that they had to act to remove Hitler and ideally to remove Himmler and Goering as well because... So there was no succession, yeah. So there was no direct succession to power. And there were several attempts. We'll, we'll talk about the plane bomb was their first attempt. There were lots of planned attempts that never happened at all. Different estimates reckon there were up to 42 assassination attempts. That's insane Hitler. that he survived, isn't it? Or How insanely yeah, lucky yeah, was yeah, that man? Yeah. I mean, the, um, the, what, what I'm reading about this one, there's uh, Von Tresco, as you say, and there's Ulbricht who was in there as well. Not the same one as, not the same one who ended up in East not, Germany. Not, that's Ulbricht, Ulbricht for you. Yeah. This is Ulbricht with an O. o. And, and Ulbricht was the head of the reserve army. Yeah, so when the sort of, you know, senior officers discussed this, there was shock. Uh, and uh, Some of them were appalled at the morality of killing an unarmed Hitler. It's mm. like, 
Killing Hitler, well, you're going too far there. I mean, I know he's brought yeah. war to all of Europe and is massive. Can't exterm- just kill a man. Yeah, it's like it's incredible the sort of perverse morality, but the sort of mm. the sense of loyalty within the army. I mean, mm. a lot of these it played both ways. The loyalty because sometimes the loyalty meant that they never betrayed each other, and so they weren't going straight to Hitler because there was a loyalty within them. But also there was a great loyalty in the German army, so that they felt it was wrong to break their oath that they had made and the leader of their country. Um, this is very yeah. typical of that sort of officer class, I yeah. think, isn't it? This sort of slightly misguided sense of honour. Because it's been instilled in them yeah. since they were at school that there's this sense of honour that you can't kill an unarmed Hitler, but the millions of Jews over yeah. there being murdered will turn a blind eye to. You know? There were ethical objections to killing Hitler. It's yeah. insane. Yeah. So the, so the actual plane plot... The, the plane plot's incredible. This, I, I, the thing I love about this story is... <laughs> I want the detonator. When, the detonator. Do you know that? I mean, all of it is brilliant. But well, not brilliant because it didn't happen. But um, so Hitler was in 1943. He was in um, Ukraine. So it's just after Battle of Stalingrad. He's visiting his headquarters in Ukraine, which is uh, nicknamed Werewolf. Okay. All of it. I oh, love this all, all, fact. Yeah. All of Hitler's uh, headquarters across Europe had the word wolf in the title because wolf or wolf was Hitler's self-imposed nickname. Now, oh if that doesn't tell you that this man's a wrong one, anyone who gives themselves a nickname, it's, well, yeah, that, if, that should have been a clue. If it's, if, yeah, the character on Gladiators will let him off. but <laughs> Yeah, we'll let him off. But anyone else who calls themselves Wolf... Well, all the imagery of the Nazis... Everyone else does. All the imagery of the Nazis was just like a 14-year-old heavy metal fan, wasn't it, really? It's, it all, really, it's all sort really of like... The, There's that lovely... Um, oh, you know that Mitchell and Webb sketch? Oh, yes, yes. Are we the, the baddies? Uh, yeah. Are we the baddies? Is, yeah. <laughs> Such a brilliant sketch. We've got a skull um, on our slow on our, on yeah. our helmet. Yeah. I'm worried about the narrative of this war. Yeah. So he's in the Ukraine and you have the army group centre, which is the group that Tresco, this yeah. conspirator, he's a general and he's in charge of this AGC as it's called. And they are based in Smolensk in Russia. Right. And so Hitler is planning to visit them on his way back. Yeah. From the Ukraine. So Tresco uh, and his co-conspirators, they've um, deliberated various ways of doing it. And, you know, you sort of think, why did someone not just shoot him in the head? You've I got know. to remember, getting access to Hitler was not easy. No, yeah, guards and You know, yeah. he was surrounded by guards. Yeah. He was, you weren't allowed to be in his presence with an arm. You know, you had to leave your gun outside, things like that. Right, you know, right. you had to sort of penetrate that inner circle. So... What they planned to do in the end, they got hold of some British explosives. Oh, no, this isn't going to go Good well. old British explosives. Right. So Tresco got one of his aides to put the explosives in a box with two bottles of Cointreau liqueur. Ah, Cointreau, and Cointreau. So the story was that he'd lost a bet with some mate back in Germany and right. needed to deliver these two bottles of Cointreau was sort of the... the, the, the payment of this yeah yeah he said what i need you to do is take this back to germany and give it to this guy in germany could you take this other plane and you you, could you pack this yourself sir (laughs) (laughs) did anyone see you packing uh, british explosives in bottles of quantro it is you know yeah so So what happened so it had a detonator that was british made as well british made as well yeah so this aide of tresco's his job was to go to the plane Set the detonator yeah. and hand the box over yeah. to one of Hitler's party on the plane. Yeah. And the idea was that it would then, once the detonator was set, half an hour later, yeah. the bomb would go off 
and they'd worked out it would go off roughly over Minsk. So they thought, oh, so, it could be like Russian fighters that brought it down or something. Yeah, exactly. So the story would be Hitler was killed by Russian fighters. Yeah, yeah. So then, yeah. So that was that was the plan. But did they realise um, how cold it would be in that deck? That's the thing. That's what their theory well, was. They thought it'd be so well, cold in the um, in the where the, the luggage is. So that yeah. was, was that was was that the reason they think it didn't detonate? This British made yeah, detonator. Yeah, that's right. It iced up basically. The oh, luggage right. was in the hold. It iced up. The detonator oh, went no. off. It's hand luggage. It, but... They've gone hand luggage. It's like one of those <laughs> wheelie suitcases. <laughs> this this poor aide had to then fly to Germany and intercept that box before anybody. Wow, and realized oh, what see. was in it, and he managed to do that, so they weren't caught. Oh, that's right. When they so, saved, that's the very explosives that were used in the Staffenberg. Uh, absolutely, which we'll come on to. Yeah. I think it's important here to talk about Operation Valkyrie. Yeah. This was an existing military operation, so the Operation Valkyrie itself wasn't the plot to overthrow yep. Hitler. Operation Valkyrie was a military plot. So you had a reserve army in Germany who were trained and ready to go when given the word. And Operation Valkyrie was an operation in place that if Hitler died or any other big thing happened, that they would then be given the cue, the reserve army, to rise up and take over, particularly in Berlin, Vienna and Munich. So what Tresco did was sort of co-opted Operation Valkyrie into his plans so that when Hitler was murdered, because him and Ulbricht, the um, yeah. leader of this um, uh, reserve army, they were able to uh, give that order um, because obviously the Nazi yeah. regime didn't know they were conspirators against them. So they said, when we kill Hitler, we then set off Operation Valkyrie. The reserve army rises up and overthrows in those cities, right? right? So if this plane had happened, yeah. there was a museum suicide bomb yeah. um, that didn't happen. This guy basically um, suicide attempts. Hitler people, was due to visit a museum. People were prepared to commit suicide. A man yeah. was wearing a suicide bomb. Yeah. He was going to embrace Hitler, um, but that didn't happen because Hitler went through the museum in two minutes flat. There was another attempt with the, the winter uniform attempt. Uh, there was a new winter uniform for the Nazi um, soldiers was released because of the harsh winters in Russia. Yeah. There was a viewing arranged for Hitler and Himmler and Goering were going to be there as well. So triple whammy, brilliant, let's right. do it now. Um, there was a model who volunteered to carry a landmine in the knapsack of the new uniform wow. um, so that when the three Nazi leaders were gathered round him, it would go off and kill all of them. Uh, but the freight car carrying the uniforms was destroyed the night before by an Allied oh. bomb. Allied I bombers. Didn't know, so didn't I know. know if the Allied bombers hadn't bombed that night. Yeah. I mean, all of these. So, so the thing is, all of us, you know, now know that Hitler makes it right through mm. to May 1945. So it's sort of like we 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 view these attempts with a sort of sense of uh, we know they don't work. But it must have been yeah. thrilling and sort of like uh, terrifying mm. at the sort of uncertainty that they were going to unleash. I don't know if you ever saw that film, Inglorious Bastards, that Tarantino film. But in that no, film, it's about it. these Jewish guys who are planning to assassinate Hitler, and. Uh, um, all the way I was watching that film was like, oh, well, I wonder how they don't do it. And it gets about 1944 mm. and they do. And they kill Hitler in 1944. It's like, oh, you just, <laughs> you just put the ending in there you wanted. And it's like, yes, Hitler was killed by some Jewish terrorists in 1933, 1943 or four. And it's like, oh, OK, of course, the history completely. That was quite a sort of bold, bold bit of writing by a Tarantino screenwriter. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but but of course well, we know that um, the big. I think the most famous one. Are you coming on to the most famous one? I am indeed. The most famous plot to kill Hitler is the um, yeah. July the twentieth plot in nineteen forty four. Yeah, so late I mean, on really in the war months now. before the end of the war. Yeah, you know, like eight months yeah. before or something. Klaus von Stauffenberg. Now he cuts quite the figure. Yes. Again, this is a man who went along with the Nazis. Yeah. For a really long time yeah. until he 
sort of had enough. He'd been injured in a bombing in North Africa. Um, he'd lost his left eye, his right hand, and he only had two fingers left on his left hand. Okay. So you might say not the ideal person to carry out an assassination, being that he had a grand total. Oh, so he had three fingers left. So, he had a grand total of three fingers. So texting and everything. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, just wasn't. But his brother Berthold was connected to the Kreisel Circle. That of intellectuals family, before. yeah. He was a count. So he was coming from a very conservative place of wanting to protect his own interests, yeah. really. It wasn't so much that he was, you know, devastated about what was happening to the Jews. It was very other ulterior motives, really, for wanting Hitler dead. Now, his plan was to take place at the uh, another one of Hitler's wolf, HQs, wolf, the Wolf's wolf Lair. <laughs> Wolfie this wolf, is the wolf, wolf, wolf. <laughs> the wolf's lair in East Prussia in right. Rustenburg. And and the wolf's lair was a concrete bunker. My heaven, John, essentially. Yes. Um, you could have called it a more sort of uh, more homely name, like Dun Conquering or <laughs> Osakozy. <laughs> but no, it had to be the wolf's lair. The wolf's lair. And it was a bunker with thick concrete walls. So. Right. Basically, an explosion in there right. had nowhere to go, right? It's contained. Right, yeah, yeah. So anyone in there would have died. There's right. just no, you right, know, because okay. the, the energy from the explosion can't dissipate, so it just bounces yes. around till it yeah, dies yeah. out. And it's, you know, everyone would have died. So Stauffenberg, him and uh, an aide, they have a briefcase with two bombs in. Yeah. Now, in this underground network one bomb would have been enough yeah but he's got two to kill everybody but they had two right so surely if one goes wrong they've got a backup right it's all gonna be fine so what happens then hitler's about to do a strategy meeting he gets himself invited yep but it's a really hot summer's day oh no Really hot. The and they gets... decide. Oh, let's miss. Can we go outside? Can we? Yeah. Can we go and do it in the park, Miss? Can we? It's too hot. It's too hot in oh, the bunker. Too hot in the bunker. Oh no. So what they decided? They relocate the meeting to Albert Speer's little wooden hut. Oh no. Which is not as ideal yeah. in terms of this explosion, but still, you know, a bomb going off another, in there is probably going to kill. Another it. bit of bad luck, though. Another bit of bad luck. Oh, and it gets worse, John. So in this hut. There's a massive oak table. Oh, no. And that's where they're sort of laying out all the maps right. and everything while they're doing the strategy meeting. So um, Stauffenberg is in his quarters and he is priming the bomb. Now, he's got a specially adapted pair of pliers in which to do it. Because I don't know if I've mentioned this, John. He only has three fingers oh, no. on one so, hand. So he's got, he's got like the bionic <laughs> so, man. He's got pliers attached to his stump yeah. and stuff. So priming a bomb, not an easy job for a, a, a three-fingered war man. veteran yeah and one eye so he, while he's trying <laughs> to prime this bomb yeah a guard comes in and tells him this meeting has been moved forward half an hour oh no right so he's like you've got to come now we're doing the meeting right now so he's only primed one of the bombs not the second one oh, no. but he's like that's all right because there's still enough right right to, okay you know so he goes to this hut where the meeting's due to take place. He knows where Hitler's going to be speaking. Yeah. So he places the bomb under the table in the briefcase by where Hitler will be standing. So when that bomb goes off... Hitler's going to get it. Dead. Yeah, yeah. No problem. Right. So it's all going to plan at this point. In uh, Important point to make. Stauffenberg at no point was ever willing to be a suicide bomber. Right, okay. He's, he it's a bit, it, was going to make look... his excuses and off he yeah. goes. Right? He's going to... Yeah. 
which he does. So he makes some excuses that he has to go and do something and he leaves and he starts making his way to the airport, right? Right. He's got one eye of getting out of there. He's got one hey. eye on getting out of there. Sorry, oh, I'll, but a, I'll, I'll get my coat. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> so as he's leaving, one of the generals in the room trips over the briefcase. Oh, no, this is like a drama. Right? He goes, oh, someone's left his briefcase here. So he moves it away uh, from where Stauffenberg's left it to the other end of the table and, and puts it behind one of these oak table legs. God. Right. So when the bomb goes off, which it does as planned, A, not as much damage done as it would have done in the bunker anyway right. because it, yeah, it's yeah. not in this sort of concentrated space. But also, quite I think four people died, quite a lot of people were yeah. injured, but Hitler was completely protected by the oak table. Uh, such bad luck again. And Staffenberg presumes that Hitler must be dead, so he gets to Berlin and yeah. goes, the Fuhrer is dead. Some of the army start to seize positions around well, this Berlin. This Operation Valkyrie that's kicks in. in. So Staffenberg gets to Berlin. Yeah. In the meantime, there is a co-conspirator who's at the wolf's lair who phones ahead to Berlin. Yeah. Tells Berlin Hitler's not dead. Right. And then... Then Stauffenberg arrives three hours later in Berlin, phones him up and says Hitler is dead. Yeah. And they so don't they know, don't who, know to who to believe. Yeah. Right. So there's all this just chaos. So they start to launch Operation Valkyrie. And you've got... There was an officer um, from, his name is, who was part of this reserve army group. Yeah. And he was not a co-conspirator, but he also didn't grasp them up. So he was one of those who, he wasn't part of the conspiracy, but he knew about it and didn't say anything to the Gestapo. Right. But at this point, when he realises that Hitler's not dead, and eventually it takes Hitler himself to make a phone That's right, it's, it's say, me, it's me, Do you recognise my voice? Yeah, I'm yeah. not dead. Yeah. <laughs> For him to go, oh shit, he's not dead. Yeah. I'm in trouble now. So he completely goes against the conspirators at that point yeah. and arrests Ulbricht and Stauffenberg. Right. And there's this sort of, again, this sort of kangaroo people's court thing that he says he's going to court-martial them. Yeah. So there's all sorts of chaos goes yeah. on. The army start to rise up and they get pushed back down again when they realise Hitler's still alive. Chesko and Stauffenberg are arrested. The aftermath of this happening is... Awful, brutal. Brutal. Hitler, who by this point is off his tits on drugs yeah. all the time, yeah. you know, yeah. is now furious and it is a bloodbath. He's right. just basically at this point, he's like, right, round up Anyone, everybody. anyone I don't like the look of. Anyone, anyone who's a bit posh, anyone who's been to a tea party. Yeah, Because there were quite a lot of people who yeah. were in prison for dissent from yeah. the beginning of the war. He's yeah. like, right, kill them now. 7,000 people were arrested by the Gestapo in the aftermath right. of that happened, of which about 4,980 were executed. Okay. And again, this is where that sip and haft thing comes in, because not only were the conspirators rounded up, but their families were rounded up yes. as well. Their children were rounded up, their wow. wives. Stauffenberg's brother... Um, was given the infamous meat hook treatment. Oh, God, I don't, I don't know, know what that is. It's a terrible um, way to die. I mean, it, basically, it's a wire around the neck, hung on a meat hook, and you'd be taken to the brink of death and then allowed to oh, no. uh, recover and then put back on it and just constantly until you eventually die. His wife was sent to a concentration camp, uh, but she actually survived. She only died in 2006, wow. Stauffenberg's wife. Um, but Hitler used this now as an excuse to settle old scores. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a rumour, not a rumour, there was a thought that maybe Himmler knew about the Staffenberg plot, but he oh, yeah. thought that he might come to power if uh, Hitler died. And so he was thinking, and maybe make peace because yeah. he was could see which way he was going, but he could become yeah. the leader of Germany. No, I don't think there's any proof of it, but it's an interesting theory. Yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah. And they had a sort of government in waiting, ready to take yeah. over. I yeah. think Ludwig Beck was lined up to be yeah. president and 
there was all yeah. sorts of we could have got into so much more detail than we have yeah, already yeah. this is a long episode i know what the plot actually ended up doing was speeding up the deaths of many who might have survived with the plot not taken place you know many in concentration camps were right. then put to death because hitler which is sort of why there's this argument as was it worth you know trying to fight do you try, try and sit out the war or do you have a duty to die and mm. try and take him with you it's an interesting sort of philosophical sort yeah. of take on it all yeah and there was a theory as well that that rommel was involved right. in the plot right. um, there was some level they think in his involvement in military resistance but no one can really ascertain it and obviously he didn't survive and no documentation survived but what happened to Rommel Hitler knew that there'd be a major scandal on the home front because Rommel was popular if he was branded as a traitor and killed so Rommel was given the option of suicide via cyanide or to go to Freisler's People's Court this kangaroo court there was a judge Roland Freisler was a, a fanatical Nazi yes. and was just, you see Im, uh, video images of him just shouting, these, and, you know, show trials. It's just, yeah. uh, you know, and They were all filmed for propaganda purposes, weren't they? You know, to show. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And Rommel knew that if he was hauled before that court, he would be killed anyway. Right. But he also knew that then his family would also be punished. Wow. Wow. So he chose to take the cyanide pill. Wow. And so that, that was all sort of kept under wraps till after the war, really, his wow. involvement wow. in that. So as you can see, there was German resistance. Yeah. There were many attempts to assassinate Hitler, many that I haven't talked about here. Um, the only thing I would say that I would add to all of it, uh, Angela, mm. is the Catholic Church. So there were, by the Ooh, time yes. that... Um, Germany occupied the Sudetenland and Austria, 50% of Germans were Catholic. And so this was a powerful force outside the structures of Nazism. And the Germans had this policy of euthanasia, disabled people, killing anyone who is uh, you know, uh, with uh, mental health, serious mental health problems or whatever. And uh, the, the Catholics objected to this. They thought it was against God's will. I saw a good play about this, actually, called All Our Children by Stephen Unwin. And um, there were times when Hitler had to pull back from confronting the Catholic Church because it was the only power structure outside of the Nazi Germany, really. And then the Pope was, you know, tentatively opposed to Nazism, but never dared quite, um, you know... There was a bit of a go-between, wasn't it, between sort of British Catholics and um, the resistance in Germany. There was a bit of, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, um, lots of Germans felt a a loyalty to the the Pope and to the the, the Catholic Church. And uh, that was the only alternative source of sort of resistance that Hitler could never quite touch. I mean, they took down crucifixes in in schools and places and put up pictures of Hitler and people were very angry about that. And Hitler wanted the Bible made less Jewish. So it's like, I don't know about you, but this, where's it set? Judea. Are you sure it's not set in Germany? And yeah, I'm pretty sure this guy was blonde-haired. Yeah, blue yeah, eyes. this Jesus pretty bloke. Sure is he this German? Jesus guy yeah, wasn't a yeah. Jew. Don't be stupid. But the Old Testament in particular, they wanted to really um, sort of t- de-Jewify it, and it's like it's a pretty mm. Jewish text. If I'm, there's not really any way around this, Adolf. It's a, it's a Jewish book. Mm. But I mean, overall, I think the history of German resistance is one of very disjointed, intermittent, and uh, secretive resistance. So it's not like the resistance that we saw in France or in Poland or in. Um, uh, Scandinavia or whatever, there was less of it than there was have been in um, in occupied countries. You know, for that simple reason that the the, the divisions and the different agendas of all the people opposing Hitler, whether you're an aristocrat who wanted a different form of dictatorship, or you're a communist who had been ex- exiled, or you're genuinely appalled by the treatment of the Jews, in which case maybe you helped one Jew you knew, but there was no way to have a coordinated, you know, mass opposition, you know, coordinated from London or anything like that. Like you say, the French had a government in exile, yeah, didn't they? Yeah. They had a, a way, a means of, yeah. of sort of communication with the Allies, which yeah. a German resistance I mean, just wouldn't have Yeah, had. Adenauer was living in. Conrad Adenauer, who'd become the leader of Germany after the war, 
was in Sweden, I think, at this point. He was the uh, SP. I had a dream once that I was at the meeting to sort out Germany after the war. We were, I think, <laughs> and we were all sitting around. And it was in a kitchen. My, it was in my student house. Yalta. It was, no, it was just, it was, uh, we were in the kitchen at my old student university house. Oh, oh right. And Adenauer <laughs> gave out, stood up and gave this really good speech. And everyone went, I think this is the guy. And then this is the guy. And then Hitler stood up and went, I think we have the master, we're the master race and it's the Jewish problem. And everyone in the meeting in 1945 was like, Oh, I can't believe he's still going on about this. We've just been through this massive <laughs> war and you're going back to that. I think it was an allegory for my Labour Party meetings where people used to drive me mad. But, but what, the, the overwhelming emotion of the dream is just everyone going, oh, he's still banging oh, on about this after all we've that. been through. You can't still think that's a good solution, mate. So oh. so anyway, thank you, Angela, for going to such detail. Just, just to re- Go on. Uh, Reiterate, that was John's dream. Yeah, that didn't that happen. Wasn't I wasn't in a meeting with Hitler. <laughs> um, on its guts. So. There are books on it. I think there's, um, a, there's a really good book. If you want to read more about the White Rose yeah. movement, it's, we decided not to concentrate on that because it's such a sad, you yeah. know, it's not really for a light-hearted history podcast, yeah. but it is fascinating stuff for yeah. Hans and Sophie Shaw. Yeah. But uh, that's a quick look through the, uh, the opposition that uh, Hitler faced within Germany. Uh, in the end, it was just the chaps of the British army who overthrew him. A couple of Yanks came along as well, and maybe the Ruskies were involved. But really, it was our boys from the Home Guard and John's dad, which overthrew Hitler. So well done, Britain. And, um, and that's the official history of World War II sorted. <laughs> thank you very much for listening everybody don't forget to go on twitter uh, give us a tweet at we are history pod um and Some nice reviews rate and review us and all of that lovely stuff that would be great and spread the word please spread the word thank you we'll be back next week with another episode of we are history bye